From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It kind of seems like viruses are having a heyday. COVID, monkeypox, flu season's around the corner, and they've detected polio back east. We'll get a checkup of sorts from an infectious disease expert in Colorado. As kids head back to school, she'll reflect on the CDC's new looser COVID guidelines, plus prospects for a fall booster. Then, a World War II story that's not often told, the role of Filipino veterans. A new documentary highlights their decades-long struggle for recognition. It seems like we set them apart as a society, as a group, and we would treat them differently in many respects. It was after I got into it and started studying it myself that I came to have a heart for what happened. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The CDC just eased up on its COVID-19 protocols. The number of Coloradans in the hospital with the virus has held steady, yet it's hard to get a handle on case numbers, in part because so many people test at home now. Every so often, we check in with medical experts to gauge where we are in the pandemic. This time, it's Dr. Michelle Barron, head of Infectious Disease Control and Prevention at UC Health. We'll talk about COVID-19 and some other viruses in the news as well. Welcome back to the program, doctor. Thank you. So the CDC's updated guidance comes out as kids return to school. There is no longer what's called a test-to-stay requirement. Uh, explain what that is and what has changed here. Sure. So for a lot of uh, schools, including uh, colleges and some workplaces, you had to test frequently and have those results back to be able to continue to attend. And so they've eliminated that testing requirement, which I think is a goal of just normalizing that COVID is going to be with us and that individuals now do need to use some common sense when thinking about whether or not they should attend a class. Okay. What's that common sense. (laughs) (laughs) So I think um, if you're feeling sick, then you should probably get tested or be more cognizant of who you're around so that if you're going to continue to attend classes or go to work, wear a mask till you know that you don't have COVID or Mm. some other respiratory virus. That's right. I mean, you you have this a dilemma when you get sick. Is it COVID? Is it something else circulating? Because we're all circulating again. What does this tell us about where we are in the pandemic, do you think? Um, I think we're actually in a better place, obviously, than we've been ever in the sense that we have good vaccines. They're now available for all ages and they're not just available for specific groups. Uh, They work very well. Um, and the severity of illness, if you get COVID now, um, is a lot less than it was. You're less likely to end up in the hospital, which I think at the time, this time last year, was not the case mm. where we were seeing surges. That is a function of the current variants. Correct. So the variants, even though they're more inf- 
contagious. They spread faster. They don't seem to be making people quite as sick as, again, the previous versions. We've heard of a new booster coming this fall. Sounds like a movie. Coming this fall. (laughs) How will it be different from the previous ones? What are you hearing? Um, So the components of the virus that they're using to trigger your immune system are more similar to what's circulating now than the original vaccine. The original vaccine is actually based off the original strain, the first one we saw in 2020. And so it's not that it's not effective. It's just this one will potentially be just even more effective. Are we always, though, in catch-up mode? Always. I mean, this is what the happens with respiratory viruses. If you look at our flu vaccines every year, it's the same kind of thing where when they make them, they're looking at, you know, who's the lead horse right now. And obviously in a race that could change. I think one of the questions is whether COVID will be with us in the way that the flu is and that we'll be looking at perhaps annual boosters. Is that direction the direction you think we're headed? I think we're headed that direction. I think obviously COVID continues to be something that we have. I don't anticipate it just dying out all of a sudden, mm-hmm. but I do think we will probably be able to treat it more like the flu and have access to vaccines yearly that are hopefully specific or close enough to have the efficacy to keep people not getting sick. Could you imagine a COVID flu combined booster? Yes, I think that is something that is going to be worked on if it's not already being worked on, Uh because I think it just makes it convenient. And I think all of us prefer to not have to get extra shots if you don't need one. There was a time when the seasonal flu was our big concern uh, going into the fall. And we, we often looked to the southern hemisphere to see what flu season might bring to the northern. Uh, any signs of what this flu season might look like? This is going to be a real flu season. I think in the COVID pandemic, we haven't seen a lot of flu cases, which is unusual. We saw sort of a spurt in April and May of this year, which also was quite unusual. But when you look at the Southern Hemisphere numbers in terms of hospitalizations and case numbers, it's on par with what we saw in 2009. And some people won't remember, but 2009 was when we saw H1N1, which was a bad year in terms of flu cases Mm. and having people get pretty sick from it. So that sounds like a function both that we're moving around again, we're not masking as much, but also the the strains of the flu. Correct. It's probably a combination of the two. And also, we don't necessarily have immunity that we sometimes get from being exposed year to year since we haven't really seen it for the last two years. Uh. And most of us were sheltering in place for the first year of the pandemic. When will you get your flu shot? Uh, As soon as it's available, which will probably be in early September. I think it's going to also, based on the Southern Hemisphere, it'll be early. So we usually see flu peak December, January. And if you sort of estimate on there what their December, January would be, they're actually seeing it probably in November. So a little earlier. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to COVID-19 because for those who are immunocompromised, uh, we've learned of this drug Evusheld that uses antibodies to protect people against COVID. So to be clear, it's prophylactic. Uh, Can you speak briefly to how this works? Yeah, so um, it's, again, part of the antibodies are part of your immune system. They're chemicals that sort of are your sentries, if you want to think about. They like circulate and try to keep things from invading your system. Uh And if they see them, they engage. And so uh, the concept is for people that can't, 
mount a response to the vaccines as well as they want, which produce antibodies through the vaccine, is that we're giving you some extra troops. And uh, they last about six months. And so the CDC did recently say that if you got one shot of this, uh, you should get a second if you, or a second set of doses um, after six months to, to, again, continue to have that extra resource in your system to protect you against COVID. So who should be thinking about Evusheld? Yeah, so anybody that's on chronic steroids, uh, people that are on medications that affect your immune system, um, whether it's for cancer or for rheumatological diseases, there's whole, sort of a long list. And I don't know that everybody realizes it's available. Huh. And it's pretty easy to access. You just have to, if you haven't been offered it, ask your doctor or your provider, and they should be able to get you access. We're asking some questions of a doctor, and that's Dr. Michelle Barron. She's head of infectious disease control and prevention at UC Health. I want to talk briefly about long COVID. So we know that there are people who've had even relatively mild cases of COVID who for weeks and months afterwards, uh, and potentially longer than that, are dealing with the effects of COVID. Are you seeing a lot of long haulers at your facilities? And I wonder what UC Health, for instance, is trying to offer them. Sure. So, yes, it's really unfortunate for these individuals because a lot of them are younger and healthier and are used to living their life. And in Colorado, that means being outside and doing things and they just can't do it. And so we're very fortunate that we have some really great experts, uh, both in the cardiology department, pulmonary department and the neurology department, because it affects people slightly different. Sometimes it's uh, their lungs just aren't back to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're their heart isn't functioning as it should. And then people describe this like cloudiness or feeling like they don't think clearly. Yeah, I was using the term brain fog for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so um, they uh, have several studies that they're doing at the University of Colorado, as well as have clinics available specifically for these patients to try and, you know, get them back to where they used to be. But to the extent that this is affecting all sorts of systems is fascinating. It is, because we don't think of it as... A respiratory virus, you just sort of think of it as affecting the lungs. Right. But it's engaging lots of different parts of the hospital for that reason. Uh, okay, we've discussed what we've got, the COVID virus, the flu virus. Why don't we go to monkeypox? Uh, Colorado at last check at 136 confirmed cases since May. The vaccine supply remains incredibly tight, uh, which has been especially frustrating to people at highest risk. As an infectious disease expert, do you share that frustration that a vaccine exists, but the supply does not? Yeah, I think it is obviously something that we would hope we would have had better access to sooner. Um, But I think this is sort of also we're on a different timeline in how we think of things. Like I think COVID in so many ways changed our viewpoint of how quickly I know people don't think it's fast, but it really is how quickly we were able to get vaccine for COVID and distribute it. Record setting, really. Absolutely. And then even when you think about that, like it still wasn't fast enough. Like we were all gaming for this to come sooner. So I think we're sharing that frustration of like we just had COVID. How did we not immediately ramp up production of this particular vaccine Mm. so we could have access? And I think it was, again, not fully appreciating that the epidemiology of this had changed and that it would spread and that people are traveling and living their lives. And I think, again, we forget some of those things of how rapidly this can spread. 
There have been just a handful of pediatric monkeypox cases thus far, but back in July, the CDC warned that children under eight could be at increased risk for more severe disease. What concerns do you have, if any, about monkeypox and back to school at this point? Um, I'd say, you know, it's something to think about, but it's not something that I would probably think of as being my primary concern if I had a child in school right now. Okay. I think we're fortunate in that a lot of the cleaning protocols that we instituted for COVID are actually quite effective against monkeypox as well. And I think the key thing with monkeypox is awareness and just sort of being um, open to the idea that it's out there. And if you get a rash that's not getting better and you're not sure what it is, have it looked at um, rather than sort of waiting and hoping it'll go away. Are you in a place in your career that you've never been before? I mean, I'm just thinking about all of the viruses that we've spoken of. The vaccine campaigns. Have you seen anything like it? No, this is certainly uh, for all people, I'd say, in infectious diseases. The last time we had sort of this intense level of thoughts and ideas and all these things is probably when HIV came on the scene. And, you know, it's been that was in the 80s. Hmm. And not to say that it's gone, but I think that was the last time the ID community really had to come together to really start thinking through how do we manage these diseases. ID, infectious diseases. Correct. Yeah. Okay. uh, One last viral question. There's a case of polio on the East Coast. They've also found evidence of polio in wastewater in New York City. As a person who tracks infectious diseases, how concerned are you in that respect? Um, I am certainly concerned, uh, not only with just polio, but what it reflects. So this is what we predicted would happen with COVID is that because healthcare was delayed, all our standard immunizations that you get on a regular basis, whether it's because you have to go to school or you just went for your checkups and you got your vaccines, those are being delayed. And then with all the controversies around uh, COVID vaccine, it's, I think, filtered into other vaccines that are incredibly safe, been used forever. In terms of hesitation. In terms of hesitation, correct. And so what we're seeing with the polio vaccine is a polio detection in New York City is that, that people are not vaccinated. And the only way you can have protection against polio is you need to be vaccinated. And, and again, people are traveling and sort of take for granted that, you know, I don't see this in the United States, so I'm not worried about it. But it does exist in other countries. And you could then get exposed. And again, if you're this is purely a function of unvaccinated individuals. Mm. If you're vaccinated, you should not have any issues in terms or you shouldn't even really be worried about this. It's more the global, uh-oh, what else is coming? Could measles be coming? Could mumps be coming? Because of what it reflects about vaccination rates overall. And just remind me, if I've been vaccinated against polio, that's lifetime protection. Correct. Okay. Dr. Barron, thanks so much. I, I hope... Not to see you in the near future. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> Although it is always a pleasure to see you. <laughs> always a pleasure indeed. Dr. Michelle Barron oversees infectious disease prevention and control at UC Health. It's on the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. And we'll be right back with what a stretch of highway can tell us about the state's approach to fighting climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. To fight climate change, state leaders want Coloradans to drive less. They plan to divert hundreds of millions of dollars from highways towards transit and bike projects. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports from a stretch of a highway 30 minutes outside Denver. The highway between Parker and Lone Tree rolls through suburban sprawl and open fields. It's four lanes wide. Bus stops are nothing more than posts in the dirt. There are no bicycle lanes and no sidewalks for miles at a time. It's pretty loud out here. My guide was Wynne Shaw, the mayor pro tem of Lone Tree. Cars blow by us just a few feet away. Um, little bit of trash, um, unfortunately. We like to think people don't litter, but they still do occasionally. But we're really just walking down the shoulder of a highway. This is not pleasant at all. No. Walking along this road might actually get a lot safer in the not-too-distant future because the plans for this road are changing. What is the vision here for this road? It really is to um, uh, get some safe space for bicycles and pedestrians. This road was going to be widened to six lanes, but now that's on the chopping block because the agency that sets the long-term transportation agenda for the region is reshaping its plans to become more climate-friendly. It's throwing out some planned highway expansions in favor of more transit, bicycle, and pedestrian infrastructure. That would be a big shift for the car-centric Denver metro. Ron Papstorf with the Denver Regional Council of Governments says they're trying to strike a balance between cars and making alternative methods safer, faster, and more convenient so more people use them. Our approach has never been to assume that, you know, we can just stop all vehicle traffic and uh, travel and, and get rid of all capacity projects. That's why we've been very strategic about the changes we're making, and we think they're significant, but they are strategic. The new plan calls off expansions of C-470 out near Red Rocks and Interstate 25 through the heart of Denver. Their analysis shows that adding more lanes would just attract more cars to the road and make climate emissions worse. Overall, Dr. Cog is proposing to shift about $900 million away from road expansions and toward climate-friendly projects. We are seeing transportation funding and priorities being brought into alignment with today's community needs. Rachel Holteen is the mayor pro tem of Wheat Ridge and a bicycle advocate. As a representative of my community, what I hear the most is people want to see investments on safer places to walk and ride a bike. The proposed changes will go to a vote at the Dr. Cog board next month. They're part of a much larger effort by the state to reduce climate emissions by 90 percent over the next 30 years. 
And out of all of those efforts, from pressuring utility companies to close coal-fired power plants to encouraging people to install electric appliances, this shift in transportation funding might be the one that affects Coloradans' lives the most. That has earned the opposition of George Teal. He's a Douglas County commissioner and a climate change skeptic. He says people are going to keep driving no matter what governments do, and that the plan will backfire in the long run. We have a population that has grown over a 30-year time span, and yet the road system that services that population has not grown, has been inhibited by plan, by policy. And I think we're going to regret that. Teal sees a future where most people drive, just like they do today. The Denver Metro's ability to reduce climate emissions from cars will depend on whether it can start to change that. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Now, a warming planet will hit some people harder than others, some jobs harder than others as well, like landscaping, which John Bucos of Longmont works in. I got into landscaping because it's something I love to do. There's something about planting a tree that stays with you. It stemmed from a love of golf, and that turned into sort of a passion for turf healthcare. My name is John Bucos, and I am the director of maintenance operations at Panorama Landscape Service. I've been in the business for over 20 years, and I've been with Panorama for a little over 11. We try to maintain a staff of about 40 to 50 employees full season, and then we bring up uh, about 40 workers from Mexico via the H-2B work visa program. Here in Colorado, working in July and August means working in a 100-degree temperature, and it's just really physically taxing on my labor force. Um, I don't have my guys work more than four days a week, so they have three days a week off to recover, and it's difficult to work from, say, 10 a.m. to 4 or 5 p.m., So we try to get a bulk load of our work done early in the morning and then later in the day, and they could just do what they can during the middle part of the day. That's my number one concern, right? This is just landscaping. Human health is more important. So I'm originally from the East Coast where it's maybe a little more temperate, uh, less fluctuations in climate. When I initially moved to the West, that's when I noticed it right away. Our seasonal transitions are becoming more and more dramatic. Uh, and we're starting to see plants that did well in the past in Colorado not thriving and surviving like they used to. Ever since I've been here, every year I've noticed it's been a little bit hotter, a little bit drier. It just seems to jump a little bit more every single year. We're having bouts of spell 70-degree weather in February. The spring seems to be encroaching on the winter, and the summer seems to be encroaching on the spring, right? So the biggest effect that we've experienced here in Colorado uh, recently from climate change is wildfire. We have these thunderstorms that don't rain. We just have lightning striking dry forest and rolling over uh, grassland. We can't stop fire from happening. We can't stop lightning from striking during drought. And we can't make rainfall, but we can be proactive. We can install landscapes that help combat Uh, fire jumping from house to house. Xeriscaping, some people think, is only just putting rock in in their yard, and that is not the case. Um, Xeriscaping is using water-wise plants, uh, plants that store water rather than need to drink every single day, Um, and also watering root systems underneath the ground. uh, Less water is used, and it's just more efficient, Um, where maybe we're putting a 
a tree canopy in your yard that shades your home where you don't have to use as much energy in your cooling bill. It's a part of the stew of the solution, right? It's, there's no one answer, no one thing we can do to our landscape to help combat climate change. I don't know how we're gonna do it in the future, but as we start to get away from gasoline and fuel, I hope that someone can come up with a battery that can withstand the the beating that we that we have on our on our equipment on a daily basis. We've experimented using some battery operated backpack blowers and some battery operated mowers and they're not commercial grade yet. Our efforts are going to electric vehicles. No one's thinking about landscaping construction. And I don't know how we're going to do it, but there's going to have to be a redirection of focus toward that. I enjoy my work. Um, I see myself doing this for 10, 20 more years. I need to get out and get my fingernails dirty. And there's just something about watching the work that you did just mature and become something beautiful. When you initially stall a twig here and a rock there and a little tiny flower there out of the nursery, sometimes the plants don't look great. But then I'll drive by it eight years later and it's huge and there's birds flying around and there's bees humming around the flowers and it's just, it, it's something that stays with you. Landscaper John Bucos is ground maintenance manager for Panorama Coordinated Services in Longmont. That profile was produced by Chiara DeMare as part of NPR's Next Gen Radio project. CPR hosted five budding journalists as they crafted stories of people affected by climate change. We'll hear more of the work in the days ahead. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with a contribution to World War II that's rarely recognized. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The CPR News climate team recently invited a group of listeners to help reforce the burn scar of 2020's Calwood fire. And we were all surprised by what we found. I can't imagine a more beautiful setting to do anything. It just makes you glad to be alive. I'm Miguel Otarola, and CPR News is covering the impacts of climate change across Colorado, including the ways that we're fighting it. Sign up for CPR's Climate Weekly Newsletter at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Rectifying past mistakes. That's the subject of the new film, A Long March, During World War II, the United States recruited Filipino soldiers by promising them benefits like naturalization and pensions. But after the war, the U.S. reneged. Even as their numbers dwindle, these veterans continue to fight for what they were promised. Frank Francone and Mike Simbre are with the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project in Colorado. They spoke with my colleague Carla Jimenez. Frank, you were stationed in the Philippines during World War II. Can you tell us a little bit about your mission while you were there? Yeah, I, I graduated from North High School in 1945. And from there, I entered the Army, went through OCS, became a second lieutenant at Fort Benning. And then I was shipped supposedly to Europe, but the ship decided that we wouldn't go that way. And we went through the canal. We ended up in the Philippines. And I was assigned to the 12th Division, which was a unique division in that all of the troops were Filipinos. Most of the officers were Americans, such as myself. We were stationed at Camp, I pronounce it O'Donnell, most people pronounce it Camp O'Donnell. Of course, it was after the battles were had taken place that the camp had been cleaned up. 
and was now a training camp for these Philippine Scouts, which were an interesting group because it was part of the United States Army. The Scouts were actually formed back in Texas in like 1911. So they were not the Philippine Army, they were not the Philippine Constabulary, which were two other military groups that were part of the Philippine organization and that government, but uh, they were all Filipinos except for most of the officers. Mike, I want to talk about your involvement. You weren't in the documentary itself, but did you have any input in the process? Well, most of the movie, they show a ceremony at the end. That was the second of my ceremony out in Denver. Uh, I was in November of 2018. And uh, my involvement was because I knew General uh, Taguba since we were 12 years old. We have a 60-year friendship. And I, you know, got myself immersed in what was, you know, the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project. Tell us about that project. What what do you guys do? Well, our mission is to recognize the World War II veterans that fought in the Philippines in World War II. First and foremost, they were recruited by Franklin Roosevelt to in the Philippines to be part of the U.S. Army or U.S. fight for their country as well as the U.S. FDR actually promised them benefits, veterans' benefits. Near the end of World War II, Congress came out with this Rescission Act of 1946, stripping them of all the promises that were made. So I thought, you know, something's not right here, you know. Why? People don't know about it. And so we got recognition for these uh, veterans through the Congressional Gold Medal. It was designed by Phil Vedrep, awarded uh, in Washington in October 2017. We have awarded actually over 5,000 medals out there nationwide and in the Philippines. So that's what's part of our, you know, the first part of our mission or the phase one. Phase two is the educational platform that we have put out there called Duty to Country. It's an education website. It tells about the history between the U.S. and the Philippines since the colonial days. It's an excellent resource for Asian American studies. Our mission for third is to repeal the Rescission Act. And you're talking about like a law that was put out 75 years ago with Congress. They're not going to worry about 75-year-old there. You know, they're waiting for all the people to die first, you know, before being recognized. But that's, that's in the works right now. And hopefully by 2024, we can get this Rescission Act repealed. Talk a little bit about those goals that your organization has. Why do you think that this history really isn't taught in American schools? People that write history sometimes omit you know, certain portions. Students must know the correct history, all right, no matter where you are, you know. Correct history has to be taught. You know, it can't be hidden in the background. Yeah, the United States have made mistakes, but the students, if you teach them correct history, then they can base their opinions on stories and depictions and factual data. Let them know, and then they can form. They can form their own opinion of what they want to believe in. If you don't learn this history, you're bound to repeat it. Frank, can you tell me why you've taken up the fight personally? Why is this such? Why has this become so important for you? Well, of course, I was stationed at the camp, 
And to be honest, I didn't know a lot at that time what happened. But I was a company commander and a battalion adjutant, and I was all of the troops were Filipinos with me, except many of us were officers Americans. You know, we gave them half pay, even though they were the same ranks, and all they got was half pay. The meals that they had were special. Now, you can justify that on the grounds that that's what they were used to and so forth. But it seems like we set them apart as a society, as a group, and we would treat them differently in many respects. Um, it was after I got into it and, and started studying it myself that I came to have a heart for what happened there and what happened to those people and uh, what, if anything, we could do to correct that situation. Both of my lolos, my grandfathers, were World War II veterans themselves. My paternal grandfather was an officer in Yusufay, United States Army Forces in Far East. And my maternal grandfather was a guerrilla. But they faced their own struggles in getting recognition from the U.S. government. And I think at one point they basically gave up. In fact, my paternal lolo died before he ever saw any of these struggles start to bear fruit. Mike, is that something that happens often? Yes, it does happen often. Uh, we try to give recognition. You've seen it in the movie that people struggle just to get recognition, especially for Mr. Almeida. He was owed $15,000, and he had applied so many times, and they rejected the dating item. Then came the day, October 25th, 2017, the VA came out, the VA secretary came out, oh, your your application has been approved. You know, they tried to politicize that. And it's, you know, the government boards, they don't recognize those things, um, whether it be school, Congress, they, they try to make themselves look good. In a way, I represented a group of people that were in the Philippines. There were a lot of young second lieutenants, West Point graduates, people that were supporting and in cases uh, running and training the Filipinos and, and so forth. And many of them were eligible for the Congressional Gold Medal in, by the ground rules that were established. And yet, here again, just as Mike was saying, people don't know about it. I was able to contact about 150 families that I was able to locate as having been descendants of officers, Americans that were in the Philippines. And I found that none of them knew about the Congressional Medal or their eligibility for that. And uh, so here again, it's, it's a matter that people just don't know what's going on in, in respects to things like that. Well, a lot of, of the struggles that Filipino veterans face right now are very similar to struggles that younger veterans face. You know, the Senate just recently passed the PACT Act that makes it easier for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans to get access to care and benefits, but even that was a political struggle to get through. So I'm just sort of curious to know, for both of you, why do you think this seems to happen over and over again? Congress has other priorities. You know, they, they campaign, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll help the veterans and everything. But most most of the time, these politicians, it's a fairy tale. 
you know, they promise this, they promise that, and when they actually get into it, special groups comes around, there's no funding, or there's funding for something else. You know, veterans has always been like a scapegoat to me, being in the service. Uh, you know, funding was always a problem. Congress, as I said, they do what is they think is good, you know, to make themselves look good. I, I feel sorry for the young kids that, you know, in Iran, Iraq, you know, they volunteered. Yeah, just like the Filipinos, they volunteered and now they get uh, discounted. Yeah, I think it's a priority issue. Um, the, the, the goal of the military is, of course, is to have enough personnel trained to to defend the country in, in, in case they need it. And, and they will do whatever necessary to uh, bring new trainees in and 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 have them become part of the uh, military academy. Um, part of that is sometimes the benefits arrive after if they've been members. I have a grandson that's uh, in in the in the reserves and, and there's a lot of benefits that are being offered to him to re- remain on that and take the weekends here and the couple of weeks there. Um, but those are um, they they have changed over the years you know i i was blessed to have the gi bill and be able to go to college and get a degree and and um, and move on from there for both of you how do you want to see this story end congress got to get their head out okay simple pure and simple okay we they have to right the wrong okay there should be no problem in receive um repealing the Rescission Act, okay? These Filipinos deserve to be recognized and, you know, back paid and all that. It's it's sad, you know. Uh, I'm hoping that in a couple of years that we can repeal it, but Congress, as like like anybody else, has higher, higher priorities. You're talking about, a, as I said, a 75-year-old uh, Rescission Act that took away all the benefits. I mean, yeah, took away most of the benefits that was promised. You know, you don't go and, you know, fight next to a guy, oh, I promise you everything in the world as long as you, you know, protect me in battle. But as soon as you survive it, you know, oh, thank you, good luck, good luck my brown brother, and just uh, discount you and all that. And I, I, I hope in that there's a happy end to all this. Uh, people have died, I mean, People are are over a hundred years old, ninety, ninety, two hundred years old, and they did they paid their dues. And now give give them back what they have worked for. That's what I hopefully can see. And I think the, the other point that Mike made earlier is the education aspect. There needs to be a program set up that the schools are are able and capable of teaching this part of the history, a part that's been neglected for so many years. And the formation of class schedules and, 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 and all the things that have to be done for preparing for such an event, hopefully we look forward to it happen. Uh, several years ago, about three years ago, Mike and I gave a talk out at Lakewood High School to the, the history students there. There were like 450 students there. 
And I jokingly say, only one of them fell asleep, you know. I, <laughs> actually, I don't know that any of them fell asleep. But they asked, afterwards, they came up to us, they asked good questions. They, like, they really wanted to know what was going on and what had happened. And uh, this wasn't a formal education program where they had a study and so forth, but it was just a presentation. And I think... Uh, the students are willing and able to understand it if we can just present it to them in a, in a organized fashion. Well, I just want to say, Frank, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. Frank Francone and Mike Simbre of the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project in Colorado. They spoke with my colleague Carla Jimenez about the new film, A Long March. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Finding your way by not fitting in. That's what worked for Colorado filmmaker Denise Soler Cox. I used to tell myself, I'm gonna do something really great with my life one day. And all of this that's happening, everything, that it would all lead to something amazing. The latest episode of the new CPR podcast, Quien Are We? Everywhere you listen and in the Colorado Public Radio app. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Aurora has chosen a new poet laureate to help give voice to the city's 400,000 residents. She is Asia Fox, and she spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. What is a poet laureate? What does that mean? So um, a poet laureate is actually a person who is selected within their city or their state. And we even have a United States poet laureate. And the Poet Laureate goes around and promotes poetry to the public. And so it's to teach the power of words. And you can run workshops or events. And it's just a way to bring in everybody and represent where you come from. To teach the power of words. Wow. I mean, I can't think of a a more delightful calling because I think we often forget the power of words. What made you want to be the Poet Laureate for Aurora? Yes. Um, so I've actually been a local poet for about five years now. Um, I started my English degree at Arapahoe Community College in Littleton and got into creative writing very seriously from there. And I started going to different open mics around the town. And from there, I just felt like, okay, if I could get into a position where I could do this more and bring in more of the public, especially people that don't have too much knowledge about poetry, then that would be phenomenal. And I found out that there was an opening um, for the Aurora Poet Laureate, which is where I live. And so I was like, I'm going to go for this because now I have experience with teaching as well. I have had a lot of experience performing, a lot of experience talking to other poets and artists around Colorado. So I feel like I already have a lot of the resources and I just wanted to bring those resources to this position. I love that you touched on open mic nights because I think when we hear Poet Laureate, so many might have a feeling that it's so academic and poetry is, it is that, but it's so much more. Do you want to speak to that, Asia? Yes, most most definitely. Um, so when I started out, um, I started as the writer Studio Club president at ACC and I was brand new to like open miking um, and I had to host those events. And so um, getting to see just all the different faces and personalities and just the different stories and poems that would come in I just felt so enriched and it actually helped me in my academic life with writing. 
And so once I graduated, I was like, you know, open mics are super important. So I started showing up to as many as I could, not just downtown, at libraries, anywhere, cafes. I would host a couple open mics. And part of that is you hear a lot of new people actually at open mic, some that have no experience with writing whatsoever. And it's so brave to show up and show out. And so I think open mics are super important as well. So I want to ask you if you'd be willing to share not just a poem, but the one that you used in your application. Yes, yes. Um, So this poem has actually been a long time coming. I initially wrote this while I was still in my degree, but it was much shorter and it was just kind of for fun to talk about where I lived. Um, When I found out about the position, I realized, okay, I can turn this into a poem that really has something to really, really say about where I come from. And so it turned into this instead. (laughs) So it's called A State of Rest, Aurora, Colorado. I know Colorado like I know every inch of my own skin. We are every shade of pastel with speckled hints of bold color. We smell of aspen leaves to the west as we smell of bonfire to the east. The debris composed of chewing gum and spit is the father and the mother, well, She is something much more crisp. Trash or treasure, we all think trash or treasure when we see the breaking news or scroll across the Aurora Buy Sell Trade Facebook page. It's Colorado custom. Can you believe we don't use signals here? We prefer the mystery here, the high rise over the mountains and the erupt nublium here. By that, I mean the dread drip and the uptick of sorrow here. Seasonal depression is very real here, but it's the trust in sudden light that keeps us landlocked here. We are corporate versus pothead, former versus fiend. It has just always been this way. We have always been this way. Been the dew that accumulates between our calla lilies and our verbena, the communication between freight train tracks, The heart beats a mixture of local sounds, and the windows bleed indigo and orange throughout the streets. I'll admit it. I adore the downtowns and the upper rounds, but the damn road is an exact location I can reach within my mind. It is just a bridge that drives right over Cherry Creek Reservoir. It is just the settling pit of everyone's dark. Whenever I drive on it, I speed a little. Roll all four of my windows down like I am the queen of the town. This is me, and I am this, cold tickling my earlobe, darting sharp across an upper lip. Aurora is the possibility of running off the edge into unforgiving water, but it's the little bleep of dying that overwhelms me into calm. The mountains, the towers, but just above the murky water is where I dwell, because from that little tiny spot, Colorado has been swallowed, and I, the overseer, get to passerby feeling every season, downfall, parade. Oh, Asia. <laughs> it's clear to see why you're the new poet laureate for Aurora. That was so visual, right? It was present. Thank you. So when you agreed to speak to me, what was it you were hoping you'd get to say that I didn't ask you about? I would love to know what... Colorado wants when it comes to poetry. Um, 
My hope is to reach out to the public even more so than just the writing community, but I also want to help the writing community that already exists here in Colorado. It is extremely diverse and robust. And what I'm realizing is it seems like communication between the different areas of Colorado and with writers and creatives is just a little difficult. So with my position, I'm hoping that I'll, I'll be able to connect some people and help network. That is Aurora's new poet laureate, Asia Fox, the city's third in that role. She spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. Finally today, the pandemic gave singer-songwriter Melissa Etheridge time to revisit some old demos. They were from the early 90s, a prolific time in her career. The result of her walk down memory lane is her most recent album, One Way Out. Etheridge, who's now 61, brings this latest batch of new old songs to Colorado Springs tonight. Then it's on to Aspen and Arvada. She credits our colleagues at KBCO for helping introduce her to Colorado audiences back in the day. Colorado loves rock and roll. And, you know, BCO played my music so much that I have deep, deep fans For many years, Colorado has always been a good stop for me because of that. And I'm so grateful. So Colorado is awesome. Her latest effort is the Etheridge Foundation. It funds research into plant-based medicines and alternatives to painkillers especially. Etheridge formed it a couple of years ago after her son passed away from opioid addiction. He was 21. This has happened to hundreds of thousands of families, and he just couldn't make it on this earth past 21. That was was all we were going to have him. You know, I would like these alternatives to be available because they weren't available for him. Even with the recent loss of her son, Melissa Etheridge, herself a cancer survivor, remains optimistic. Her secret? I'm telling you, joy is the key. It's about changing your life and getting rid of the stress. That's what it is, man. You've got to get your mind out of the stressful habits, you know, and really find your joy. Etheridge shares her joy with Coloradans this week, and she'll be back next month to play Grand Junction. Her latest album is One Way Out. You know I love you I've been holding out all night But if you want me You got to tell me now Honey, you got to try Now baby, don't you want me Don't you think it's about time There's a fire down below But I got no water on the line I didn't 
And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to a team that brings me way more joy than stress. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.